Recovery Elevator, episode 212. At a certain point, you can no longer negotiate with alcohol. It is doing what it is going to do to your body, and you can't control it after a while. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Trisha. She's been sober since November 14th, 2016. Trisha is 37 years old and she's from Dallas, Texas. And guys, if you recognize the name Trisha, it's because she's been on the podcast twice before. I had her on on episode 100 when she had 30 days and then again on episode 150 when she had one year. Guys, it is an exciting interview because we're going to go in depth. It's a longer interview. So we're going to cover some recovery topics that, that I've been waiting to cover for a long time. Um, and having said that, my segment will be a little shorter, um, but I'm still excited to cover something brief with you. But before I do that, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. My birthday is April 10th, and I cannot think of a better way to celebrate my birthday weekend than with you. On Saturday, April 13th in Los Angeles, there's a group of us going to see the spiritual leader Eckhart Tolle talk with Marianne Williamson. If the name Eckhart Tolle sounds familiar, it's because I've said his name a lot on this podcast in the last year. Of course, I'll be wearing an RE t-shirt. I'd love to meet you before or after the event. It's going to be an awesome night, and everyone's invited. Okay, let's get started. Sometimes we reach a moment in our journey where we say, what's next? We find ourselves in a place where we're feeling good. There's nothing clear on the horizon that needs to be tackled. So where do we go from here? First off, pat yourself on the back. You made it to a beautiful place in this journey. Take a breath, take a seat, relax, maybe enjoy it for a little bit. So here's what I would recommend. We chatted about this briefly in a webinar the other night, and I wanted to cover it in a podcast episode. So where to go next? right? Initially, when I reached these plateaus in recovery, externally, I would start the gazing process. I would look out. I'd say, well, um, no, do I, do I need to mow my lawn? Should I change the tires of my car? Should I wash my car? Do I need to perhaps lose weight? Should I go on a run? A lot of these things were a, a external things in my environment that I, that I look to alter, change, or to improve, which is totally fine. However, here is what I recommend. First off, don't go seeking of what's next. Like I said, I started to look 
I start to look outside and say, well, what's next? Even looking within and saying what's next is not the right way to go because simply seeking is reinforcing a mind state that we are lacking something. If we are looking for something deep down that says that we don't have something, that we need something. So again, don't go seeking. So here's what I recommend you do. Listen to the body. The body is going to tell you where to go next. And again, don't go seeking. Just live your life normally. And something is going to happen and your body's going to tell you, uh, this is where we need to go next. Sometimes it's as easy as getting in a car and driving around town. Someone is bound to drive in a way that you don't approve of. So when this happens, focus on where it is in the body, be with it, sit with it, dive into the body. And this is where you need to go next in recovery. For me, this can be patience. Sometimes I find myself in a conversation and I just want to get out of, I say, listen, look, I'm not, not, not really too interested in this subject matter. And that's okay. We've all been there. Maybe I'm, I'm just doing what admitting it right now. But recently when I've been in these occasions, I said, ah, okay, this is what I need to work on. This is my patience. I need to be fully present in these conversations because guess what? There's always enough time in the day, despite what our mind and society tells us. So. That's my recommendation. When you hit a plateau in recovery, let the body indicate where you want to go next. The mind might say, you know what? We think, uh, I want to get our mile underneath eight minutes. I want to get in better shape. Okay. That's not a bad thing to do, but the body might tell you differently. The body might react to a situation that happens in life. Again, don't go looking for these situations But when they happen, your body might say, Oh, there's some self-loathing. There's some shame and guilt that need to be addressed. That's where we're going to go next. Okay. You guys, I'm excited to chat with Trisha to catch up guys. Trisha in recovery has become one of my good dear friends. Uh, she is doing cool things herself in, in, in sobriety. And I'm honored to just have her number in my cell phone. I can call and say, Hey, Trisha, look, my body told me where to go next. And it's indicating I need to work on this, but it's tough. Can you give me some pointers? Trisha, we have done that dialogue back and forth several times. Uh, and so I'm honored to have such a rock star in my corner. Um, but before we get to Trisha, let's hear from Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data, and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as the 100 most popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And right now, Robinhood is giving listeners of the Recovery Elevator podcast free stock like Apple, Ford, and Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at elevator.robinhood.com. Again, that's elevator.robinhood.com. Trisha, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paul? Trisha, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And listeners, if the name Trisha sounds familiar, it's because this is not her second, but third time back on the podcast. And I love having people back on the podcast. It's kind of like a Where Are They Now series. And for your reference, she was interviewed on episode 100, approximately, let's go with 110 weeks ago, when she had 30 days of sobriety. And then back at episode 150, 
when she had one year of sobriety. And right now, Trisha, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober now? I've been sober for two years and just under three months. So yeah, two years and some change. Feeling good. Two years, three months. You mentioned November 14th, 2016 is a sobriety date. And I am all the interviews on this podcast. I'm excited to do it. Look, I see them on my calendar. They're great ways to start my day. I purposely schedule them in the mornings, the bulk of them. I love doing them, but this one I'm really excited about Trisha because we are going to dive into some deeper stuff in recovery. And we're going to talk about all the amazing projects that you have going on. Um, I can't wait to share those with the audience and just get to know you better because a lot has changed since episode 150, (laughs) both for me and for you. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I feel like a third time I should get like a special jacket or something, you know, we we need to get to work on that. A cookie, a jacket, a chip, and a picture of my standard poodles in the mail, Tricia. And I want a secret handshake and some sort of password too. Definitely. We're in video Skype now after the interview, we'll make that happen. And so (laughs) Tricia, you know, I hope listeners go back to those episodes and listen to them, but let's get listeners up to speed. Um, Let's just learn a little bit more about Tricia, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. So again, my name is Trisha, 37. I live in Dallas, Texas, and I am a chef by trade. I'm a business owner, and I own a prepared food, like a prepared meal company. Um, I also have a few side hustles, so I spend a lot of my time working on social media, and I do not have kids. I am divorced. I have a man friend. For fun, I like to... Lately, what am I into? You know what? I'm still into crafts. I like jigsaw puzzles. I like to knit. I like to cross stitch. I like to watch RuPaul's Drag Race. That's the only show I've got any time for on TV. And yeah, live music is always a good thing. You know, driving around, chilling, listening to tunes. Pretty, pretty laid back in my free time. Love it. And we are going to explore more about the projects you have. One of them is a music festival coming up and your incredible podcast that you have. But before we get oh, to yeah. that... Yeah, let's uh, let's just let's get the uh, let's get the summary of of your story. Give listeners background of your drinking. Maybe when you started, when you first realized, oh shit, this isn't working anymore. Did you ever do the whole moderation game? I'm guessing yes. Just we want to know how you did it and if it worked. <laughs> yeah, get us up to speed. Spoiler alert: No to that last part. Yeah, let's just. I need uh, I need to take that question off this sheet because I'm know. I'm O for 216 on. Did you find a moderation technique that worked? It's good for the newbies, though. You know, you got to remember that as many episodes as you have, they're always new to someone. So Absolutely. something to remember. So, uh, yeah, I, I grew up around alcoholism and addiction. Uh, it was pretty prevalent in my family. My older brother uh, had a very, very lengthy and serious career in drug and alcohol addiction. So I grew up in high school having to sort of deal with his mess all the time. And typically the sibling or the, you know, the child of an alcoholic or an addict is codependent, meaning that we love to put other people's needs before our own. So I was really, really good at trying to overcompensate for my brother, try to be the peacemaker, try to achieve, try to put in a little bit extra, just to try to like soothe any situation around me. I always tried to take control of everything. I'd say that was pretty evident um, when I started drinking because the first time I drank, I was 16 and it was super indicative of how the rest of my drinking career was. So I remember a boy broke up with me that I was quote unquote in love with and he, he dumped me and my heart broke and I was 16. And so I got drunk for the first time because I was at a party that he was at 
he did not like it when his friends drank. So I thought, well, if he doesn't love me, I'm going to make him hate me. So I drank because I didn't want to feel those feelings because I wanted to control the way that other people thought about me. And yeah, I just, I didn't, that's just who I am. You know, like I, I wanted to control everything and I wanted to, I wanted to change the way I felt. And that's kind of how I've always drank, even as an adult. I don't know that I ever really drank to casually enjoy a glass of wine. I think I've always drank to get drunk. So I'd say that those rules started to come into play where you start trying to moderate how much you're drinking and trying to make sure that you're not drinking faster than the people around you. Um, probably in my mid-20s, I started to black out a little more frequently in my early 20s. And you know, the, the, the big thing here is that I was always an overachiever. And, you know, made really good grades, always worked really hard at several jobs. And I knew so much about addiction. So surely I could outsmart this thing, right? Like I figured somehow there was some sort of immunity. Like if I knew enough about it, I couldn't have a problem. So I drank and I worked and I achieved and I drank and I worked and I achieved. And it was this vicious cycle of high functioning, eventually alcoholism. And it was the the part that was the hardest for me to deal with was just diagnosing what equals a problem because I was really good at making it look like I didn't have a problem. You know, like I, I, I worked, I was ambitious. I was, you know, was an executive chef by the time I was 23. You know, I didn't have any DWIs. I didn't get in fights when I was drunk. I um, just, I was really good at making it look like I had it all together. And I've been really good at that ever since I was a teenager. So that habit, that habit sticks around. That, yeah, that was that was the hardest part, Paul, was just figuring out what is a problem. Because when you're looking around you and you see somebody who, you know, my older brother, you know, someone who's in jail and who's dealing drugs and who's been homeless and you see the stigma, you know, what we all think of the stigma, the guy living under the bridge. When that's your definition of, of a problem, how in the hell do you de- decide when you have a problem, when everything looks fine on the outside? So Tristan, that, the, in- the dangers of the stigma is twofold. Number one, we don't talk about it. We hold it tight to the vest. We're, we're scared to talk about it. And number two, it's because our definition of, is skewed of what somebody with a drinking problem looks like. You mentioned brown bag, underbridge, homeless, lost job, multiple DUIs, divorce, bankruptcy, probably some time spent in prison. Nope, none of those. I don't have a problem. And that's why the stigma is so, so dangerous. It is. And there's the stigma that like you see in movies. And then there's the stigma that you live with. There's the stigma that you grow up with. So that stigma was embedded in my life. I knew I knew what a problem looked like, or I thought I knew. So how could I have that problem when everything looked fine? That was my obsession, making sure that everything looked fine. And yeah, that's 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 high functioning alcoholism defined too. And could you think of a specific time when you got a glimpse of presence and when you weren't viewing it through skewed eyes, when you were able to look and say, wait a second, maybe my drinking isn't normal. Probably when I was about 23, I'd say that, you know, I started blacking out pretty regularly at 23. And just finding out what I had done the night before, it was so mind blowing because those are things that I would never do in a sober state of mind. You know, I was just making really risky decisions and just doing things that like normal Trisha wouldn't do. So it was like, that's when I realized that something was wrong, something was different. And the thought of having to quit someday gradually became, you know, this idea that was like, all right, that's probably something I'm going to have to do someday. But the older I got, and the more I fought with my drinking, and the more I tried to control it, and the less success I had in that endeavor, 
I don't know. It's just like, it's, I, I, I hate even thinking, going back there and thinking about it because it wasn't, it wasn't like the physical damage that I was feeling. It was that internal battle of like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I just drink like a normal person? I never got that. Just that, that, that torment, even at two years and change that mental torment, it feels so fresh even to this day. And, and, and for listeners who, and I thought it was going to be the same thing, that day one was going to be the hardest day of my journey. And this is good news for a lot of listeners because if you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely ready to make change. What you mentioned, Trisha, that inner turmoil for me was by far the worst part of this journey. And that was about a year or two before my sobriety date where it just said, what the F is going on? So most likely if you're listening to this in the year time of the journey, you're past that. Um, but I know what you're talking about, Trisha. It's demoralizing. And can you think of, was there a specific rock bottom moment on November 13th, 2016 that led you to quit drinking? Was it accumulation of events, just being sick and tired, was, of being sick and tired? Yeah. You know, um, a couple of things. I was able to really make it look like my drinking was fine for a long time. I was able to make it look socially appropriate and glamorous and very normal. I've worked in the restaurant industry for 20 years, and we are a group of hard partying individuals. So I have to say that um, being around people that drink a lot is really helpful when you want to feel like a normal drinker. So giving myself the permission to go, you know what, actually, maybe this isn't normal. That was a big game changer. Um, when I was 34, I got a divorce. Uh, it was a giant surprise and uh, kind of threw through my life for, you know, there, that was a big hiccup. And I didn't want to feel those feelings. And that's really when my drinking took a, a turn for the worst. Um, really just, again, I, did, I wanted to change the way I felt. And um, I also noticed that I was blacking out pretty much every time I drank. Sometimes it would happen at three drinks. Sometimes it would happen a lot more. So the game changing moments were when I was waking up with like injuries that I didn't know where they came from, you know, covered in bruises or a giant bump on my head because I'd fallen and an ambulance had been called on me the night before. These things were starting to happen more and more. You know, a tooth was loose because I fell. And after, I mean, I'm a smart girl. Like at a certain point, I was just like, I'm going to die if I keep doing this. Like at a certain point, you, you just, you know, I said it in my first episode, at a certain point, you can no longer negotiate with alcohol. It is doing what it is going to do to your body and you can't control it after a while. And uh, I just knew that like, I was probably going to, I lived alone. I was probably going to fall down a flight of stairs and die if I kept doing this. That negotiation was long, long over. And uh, after a week of what would look like socially acceptable partying, you know, it was like three nights in a row of game nights and birthdays and brunches and dinners. And after like three nights of that, I woke up on a Monday and um, had three days of physical withdrawals, like total detox symptoms. And that really scared the shit out of me. And uh, that was it. That was the game changing moment was Trisha, you can make this look good until until you can't. And right now it's not looking good. And it's time to just to give up. So about three days into it, I was like, all right, we're already here. We've already detoxed. Why don't we just go ahead and keep going? You know, it was already part of the plan to quit drinking someday. So oops, we started. And uh, that's when I heard your podcast and decided to really throw throw myself into recovery the same way that I threw myself into drinking. And before we get into how you did it, um, you, you submitted a snippet for my upcoming book about your, your first line was incredible. It was something about there's never something else that you failed so many times at before asking for help. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just, you know, that's the insanity of there this we disease. Go. 
that's the insane. What's insane is how many times you can fail over and over and over and still try in a matter of just a few hours later to do it again on your own. And, it, you know, like how, where else in life do we fail that many times and still try to do the same thing, thinking we'll get different results? And it's also like we, we continue to try again, but don't switch anything up. It's like me trying to bench press 500 pounds, it not working, and then me not taking any weight off the bench press. Just like, well, let's try it again. didn't work. 500 pounds again. And continuing yeah, sure. to do that over and over and over. And, listed, and for information, listeners, my bench press is 463. I'm just kidding. Subtract about, <laughs> subtract about 385 pounds. That was just the first analogy <laughs> came to mind. But we try it over and over and over, but we don't change anything. And, you know, eventually yeah. we slowly make slight modifications, but I love that line is yeah. the well, insanity and, and of the disease. That's what it is. And, and Paul, where else in life do we do that? Like, and, and also mo the fear of failure usually keeps people from trying something once, but the, but the, the proof of failure with drinking still keeps us trying the same thing every day. It is so that, that phenomenon blows my mind. Nowhere else in my life have I ever tried and failed over and over and over and over and over again, except for drinking. You're right. There are so many pickles in recovery, and we are going to talk about some of those soon, these paradoxes. There's there's so many. And one of them, like you said, where most most times people try something one or two times, like, oh, can't water ski on one ski. I'm done. But when we try to quit drinking, we, I, I tried to quit drinking. I attempted to quit drinking 500 times maybe. But then like how many times we'll try it without changing our techniques, right? And out, without asking for help or before we reach that point. I love how you said it. Thank you. Well, and also it just goes to show too that when you're used to pretending like everything is fine and you're used to making sure everyone else is fine and don't worry about me, everything's fine. I'm great. I'm great. I'm great. That's a real hard habit to unlearn, but you have to when it comes to getting sober. You have to go, you know what? Everything's not fine and I can't do this and I need some help. And before we get to, to how you did it, let me just ask you this question real quick. I wrote this chapter in a book this morning and it was a tough chapter to write. I know I'm not done. Why do you think it's so hard to quit drinking? Mm. And I'm putting you on the spot. I, I, I got here mm. early in the morning and just, you know, I, I have a good idea. Well, it's more of like how to put it into words. Yeah. Why is it so hard? We love to get in our own way. It's one thing, you know, I think that essentially most big lessons in life, figuring them out are a lot simpler than we think. But I, I think that we uh, instinctively make things harder than they need to be. Two, alcohol is highly addictive and you, you know, throw in a little trauma and, you know, you just gas on the fire. I think our egos get in the way. I think that most of us think that, you know, we're more powerful than we are. And it's hard to say I can't do something. Where, where do you like, Paul, let me kind of ask you now, throw that back at you. Where in life do you say you try something once and you say, I can't do it. I need help. Like where, when, when does that happen? Oh, several times. So, several times is, is in basically if I try like the website stuff, I try to do a website and I can't do it. Yeah. I, I email somebody. Is that what you're getting at? No. Well, yeah, it's, that's the right answer. I would have, because, because for me, I like, I hate asking for help. I like to try to do everything by myself. And so. this is a muscle that I have built slowly. Yeah. Yeah. In recovery in recovery. Yeah. I, yeah. Without did I understand the question like, right? Yeah, we know you did, but you also gave me like the answer of like a, a very healthy individual too. Like <laughs> I think okay. most of us aren't there yet. <laughs> okay. Well, I've been going at it, at it this for just a little bit of time, yeah. but I understand yeah. I, my journey is not unique. I didn't skip any of the steps. I went through the whole four or five years of just hammering this thing out alone on the pavement, banging my head against the wall. And it was brutal. It was absolutely yeah. brutal. 
If I was if I wasn't such a people pleaser, Paul, I probably would have decided to get sober years before I did. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was really I'm I've always been really concerned about what other people thought of me. And what if they thought I was an alcoholic? What does that say about me? Well, if that's the case, I'm going to do everything I can to think, uh, you know, to to control the way that people thinking about think about me. And that's one of the things that kept me drinking for so long. It's just this unnecessary need for control. And it's so exhausting. After a while, you just run out of energy. I mean, 35, I just physically couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it. I was going to bring up the people-pleasing thing later, but this is a great segment. You and I have something in common. This is a huge part of my sobriety. And, and the reason why it's so hard to detect you know, what we're drinking to cover up is the blinders. It was about year three and a half of my sobriety where I reached a point. I was like, holy shit, I'm a level 10 people-pleaser. And I had no idea. And how did that look like for you? When did it, when did you realize it? That I was a people pleaser? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I think I always knew I was, but I don't think I understood the destructiveness of it until I really got sober and took a good hard look at all the different ways that I was making my life harder in order to please other people. Can you think of any and, specific to- examples? Mm-hmm. One, one was just continuing to drink because I thought that that was expected of me by certain friends or certain acquaintances. So trying to please them and make sure that they thought of me a certain way. That, I mean, that, that's, that's the, the overarching theme here, really, with, with my drinking. You know, in, in work and in business, you know, making decisions that weren't necessarily best for me or best for the way that I was running my business in order to appease either employees or somebody I was working directly with. That was a that was something I did a lot just to please people. And I felt the sacrifice from that financially with my schedule, you name it. Yeah. And I love it how we've both connected the dots that people pleasing equals control of both our internal and external environment. Because I did it. You, people, you think people pleasing, I'm just gonna be nice to everybody. But it was actually it controlled a lot of my actions. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, nothing against Mormons, but I was one of only a couple kids that was not Mormon. And I wanted to make everybody like me just so I could fly under the radar. I moved to Utah. I moved to Colorado, age 12. Similar patterns happened. Same thing in college. And in my early 20s, I found out that I liked being an entrepreneur, but a lot of these activities I was doing was for external validation. I didn't know it. I didn't know. I was completely blind to it. But I did a lot of things that I didn't want to do strictly for the approval of others, mainly so I could just blend in and fly under the radar. Yeah, I mean, real, I've relationships. That was a big one for me. Just the way that I behaved around men, or the way that I behaved um, with my ex-husband, the way that I would, you know, change my answer to a question to please somebody, you know, which is also a unnecess- totally unnecessary because it's not like they were even asking for it. That was just what I thought needed to happen. You know, when I think about people pleasing, the the visual that always comes to mind that I think clearly defines it is going over to a table. Like you're at a restaurant, right? And you go over to a table where some people are eating dinner and you go and you pay for their, you just pick up the tab and you walk away. Like that, that's not your dinner. You didn't eat that dinner. You don't have anything to do with that dinner. Why are you going over there and trying to be responsible for it? Like that in my mind, like, and probably just because I've worked in restaurants, that's people pleasing. Like I'm getting involved in stuff that has nothing to do with me and trying to take control of it and trying to be responsible for it is none of my business. Absolutely. Plain and simple. Yep boundaries taking on things that aren't your energies in the first place Um, yeah well and there's also a level of conceit there too when you think that everybody is thinking about you and worries about you and and what you want you know like 
we're not the center of the world. People aren't losing that much sleep over us. I hate no. to break the bad news to you. And we're going to get more into this deeper stuff later, but let's talk about how you did it for a couple minutes. What were, sure. what were some big lessons you learned in early, early sobriety, you know, midway, not midway through, but yeah, just how'd you do it from start yeah. to where we're at now? Uh, first and foremost, I had an open mind and I stopped doing what I thought I should do and listened to what other people told me I should do. Uh, I tried everything. I tried AA. I tried self-help books. I tried therapy, podcasts, Cafe RE, other online sober groups, yoga, meditation, prayer. I mean, I just I did everything. Like if, if somebody said it was going to help, then I was willing to try it. Yeah. So first and foremost, just having an open mind and just trying something without even having an opinion about it. You know, we think we know what's best for us, which is just what gets us into trouble. So I just kept an open mind. I started going to AA meetings pretty regularly. I recommend those for people in their first year of sobriety because it legit teaches you how not to drink and it gives you something to do every day or three times a week or however often you want to go. Plus, it's a really good lesson in patience because you got to be big time. Yeah, you got to be patient with the people around you because because AA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the big part was just accountability and coming out, telling my friends and loved ones and the people that were close to me like, hey, this is something I'm struggling with and I need your help. Talking to my therapist and being open, being honest. Honesty is best for everything, really, even if it doesn't feel good at first, usually never gets you in that much trouble, does it? <laughs> rather than rather than lying about something and then having to go back and fix it later. Yeah, I mean, just honesty and accountability and just not doing what was comfortable. You know, I went out of the way to do the things that were uncomfortable because I knew that that's what was going to make this better in the end. Yeah, and your actions confirm your words. You emailed me with a couple weeks of sobriety, got you on the podcast at 30 days. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. And this is how cool recovery can be after the, at the end of that first conversation or whatever. Yeah. I think the first one I was like, Hey, I'm having this retreat in Bozeman. Love to have you come out. You ended up helping me out a ton, carried coffee up and down the hill like a hundred times. Um, mm -hmm. we hung out in person in Bozeman. We hung out in person in Dallas and mm -hmm. it's, it's been an incredible journey and, and listeners, what she just said at the beginning of having an open mind, you tried everything. And here we are with two years and three months later, it's worked. Mm -hmm. Well, and I have to I have to make sure everyone knows that just because I tried everything doesn't mean that everything's stuck. But I wouldn't have known unless I tried those things. So I know now that like self-help books, that's not my jam. That doesn't work for me. AA worked really, really great for the first year. Second year, not so much. These are things that you can change and evolve and grow from. Like you don't have to stick one thing, like stick to one thing and only do that one thing. I think that's a terrible idea, actually, to just only do the one, you know, the same thing and never change. But yeah, I mean, God, just being open to it and just taking direction is huge because, again, we always think we know what's best for us, but we're usually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and as you mentioned AA, I've, I've got a question for you. Yeah. And I'm doing some initial research for an upcoming podcast episode. I, I, I heard this word. I've heard this word in a meeting a couple times. Heard this word in a meeting a couple times. And when it's mentioned, when it's dropped, there's a palpable shift in energy. And I said it in a meeting not that long ago is almost a test. Um, while I was talking, I was like, Oh, there's this word. I'm going to throw it out. And there was a pause and I could see people shift in their chairs and the energy will shift in a room. And I'm excited to do this episode. And the word is recovered. And this word shows up many times in the big book, but is very rarely talked about 
in the meetings. It's recovered past tense, not progressive, not in recovery, not ing. I'm recovering. R e c o v e r e d. Confirm that spelling for me, Tricia. <laughs> recovered. What that means is, and this is this is written by the authors of the big book. Recovered. We have recovered from our alcoholism. Now let's just go there. Let's go deep right now, Tricia. Is that a thing? Recovered. Uh- is recovered a thing? Uh, it kind of depends because really, I mean, in my opinion, alcoholism is not even about the alcohol. It's about the stuff that you're drinking over. And if you're going that deep, then you have to look at what are you really recovered from? Because am I recovered from alcoholism? In my mind, yeah. I rarely have the urge to drink. It's not something I want to do. I'm literally repulsed by it and it has no place in my life. What am I not recovered from? My anxiety. You know, I still I still dip my toes back into the people pleasing waters. I still fall victim to workaholism. You know, I still make bad decisions for very, very deep rooted reasons that I probably haven't even gotten to the bottom of. Those are the things I'm not recovered from. But those are the things I drink over. I I knew you'd knock that question out of the park. Um, There's no right or wrong answer, but I just love your response because I agree 100 percent. I think I was recovered ED from alcohol. I don't know, 18 months, two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, mm-hmm. it's just, it was a non-issue. It was a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Cravings for alcohol, no longer mm-hmm. there. And then, yeah. But like you said, there that the other issues. I'm in. I'm still recovering. That is progressive tense. And yeah, I mean that that that's that's the real like those are the real problems when you get down to it, right? You know, you have a little bit of trauma or something that you drank over. It's not about the alcohol. It, it, it's about the deeper stuff. And I'll, to be honest, I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to recover from some of these things. Yeah, and it's a, it's a beautiful moment. It's also confusing at the same time when we reach that point in our journey. We've heard it in the meetings. We say, oh, it's not, it's, you know, drinking is but a symptom. But when we first reach that moment, oh, shit, this never had anything to do with the alcohol. I feel like that's where my recovery truly began. And that was about year three for me, which is, gosh, it's wild. It's a long time. Well, yeah. And I also I have to stress the fact that I, you know, I, I went to AA meetings and I believe in the in the 12 steps. And uh, I think it was hugely helpful. But I also saw a therapist and there's something to be said for seeing a certified mental health professional to help you work through some of the deeper stuff underneath the alcohol, rather than leaning on a group of alcoholics for everything. Talking to somebody who who knows a little bit about your history and has the uh, the certification to diagnose things, I think it's important to look into that. And I, I, I just have to let you guys know, like, I didn't lean on AA for everything. I, I had professionals that were helping me work through the deeper stuff, too. And I, I fully agree. The beauty about this stuff, it's all in conjunction with none of this stuff is and or. It's not a therapist or AA. It's not, hey, you're part of Cafe RE or you go to AA. You just don't listen to Trish's podcast and that's it. My, that's it. It's all in conjunction with. It's not plant medicine or not. If you just did plant medicine, you're, that's not the way at all. This is all mm-hmm. conjunction with. And like you mm-hmm. mentioned, my recovery team was huge first year. Mm-hmm. And as I got mm-hmm. more stable footing, I didn't see my therapist as much. Didn't, you know, started to let things go. And I love, I love how you mentioned that. It's not and or. And mm-hmm. it looks completely different for everybody. I love how you said AA was great for you the first year. And then it wasn't. I, I last summer, I think it went eight, uh, probably six months without going to a meeting, and I go to like one a week. Yeah, there's just there's phases and shifts, and you always have to be changing things up. Yeah, you have different seasons. You have different. And I'm not knocking on AA again, but like it's not a hotbed of mental health in there. I mean, let's be honest. Like I can't. I, can't. <laughs> I just I trust a pro. <laughs> We don't have to leave that part in there. <laughs> no, that's that's great. I mean, it's we're just it's an honest honest chat. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what it yeah. is. 
And where are you at in your recovery, Tricia, with two years, three months? What are you working on now? Mm, so a couple of things. You know, like I'm in some transition right now. I'm sort of in the middle of a career change, and I moved, and I feel like I'm sort of in an in-between phase in my life. So um, being patient with those things that are kind of out of my control is something I'm working on on a personal level. On an achievement level, you know, I've got this event in Austin next month in March called Sober by Southwest. And there's something I've gotten really passionate about. It's kind of dissecting this culture of binge drinking and the idea that alcohol has to be available in order for you to be social. And that's something that's pushed on us since when, since, you know, when we're little kids, you see it in movies and TV and commercials. And, and um, when you really start looking, looking a little harder at that, it's real backwards because everyone teaches you how to drink, but they don't teach you how to not drink. So I started looking at like, where are these social experiences happening? And there's not a lot of them. So I'm kind of working on creating these social experiences. You know, like Sober by Southwest is happening in Austin during a weekend that's full of live music. So my partner and I are putting on an event that's six bands and unlimited mocktails and B12 shots. Like we're having shots, but they're shots of B12. You know, there's all kinds of cool stuff and, and it's a good time and we can party and have a good time with our friends. We're just not drinking. And those activities and those types of events aren't as available as they should be. You know, there is a need for them. So I'm kind of working on providing those experiences and trying to push back a little bit on that culture that tells us we need to drink to be social because that's a lie. First off, love the name Sober by Southwest. What's the date again? March March 16th. So yeah, it's during, yeah, it's during, yeah, it's during South by Southwest weekend during, uh, in Austin. So we are an unofficial event. I have to say that we are unofficial, but we are called sober by Southwest. So we are an entirely sober event and uh, tickets are on sale. You can go Mm -hmm. to sober by Southwest.com. Sober by Southwest.com. Get tickets. Trisha, I absolutely love this project and it's, it's going to gain wheels it's, it's, it's going to grow. It's going to grow. There, there's this law from the philosopher Alan Watts called the backwards law where initially if people have to first and for myself and you included, we initially had to go through the enjoyment with, with, with the drug called alcohol. And then eventually we reach a point where, you know, there's a negative with that, that I, that I reached to, to realize that it was possible to do this without alcohol and normal drinker, alcoholic or not, it doesn't matter who you are. There is this pull to, to be in situations or be in environments that you're creating right now. For example, I started, I started a recovery group on meetups.com called sober is sexy group. And it's a small town in Bozeman and, but a lot of members joined in fast small town. I know a lot of people and I was going through and I'm like, no, that's, that's, that person's not in recovery, not in recovery, not in recovery. Yes. In recovery, not in recovery. And I reached out to some of these people and I'm like, did I, I was like, Hey, did I do the description wrong? Was it not clear that we're a sober group? And they're like, no, no, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not, I'm not in recovery, but I just want to hang out in an environment where the focal point is not alcohol. Like, how refreshing is that? You're onto something huge, Tricia. Well, and, and the irony is that like as an alcoholic, it took me a while to figure out that most people don't drink like me. Mm-hmm. Like they just don't. A lot of people just don't drink, and which is mind-blowing. But it's true. But it doesn't matter because the, the pressure of needing alcohol to be around your friends and family and celebrate still exists. So obviously it sounds like people that just don't want to drink because they don't want to still feel that pressure. You know, I started a podcast last summer called Recovery Happy Hour, and it kind of ties into this idea of Sober by Southwest where I just wanted to have a happy hour. Like we can still have fun and talk about recovery without 
like life doesn't end when you quit drinking. And that fear of missing out is what keeps so many people from ever giving it a shot. So I wanted to talk about like celebrating a life of recovery, celebrating a life without alcohol and proving that you're still fine. Like the world doesn't end when you quit drinking. And then, uh, yeah, and having these conversations and meeting people all over the country and doing what you do and just interviewing strangers about their life in recovery. That's how the event was born with, with Sober by Southwest. I love you said celebrate because that is the mindset for all of our events moving forward. I know your event as well. Your events, this is not, it's not a punishment and you're coming to Nashville when this airs Nashville, it will have already happened. But just to let you guys know, these events are celebrations to celebrate that you've made the decision to not drink. It's not a punishment. You don't have to be there. And again, we're not squelching emotions. It's not like you're going to be there and have to put on a happy face the whole time. Yeah. There's going to be tears of joy, no, tears of recovery. Yeah, we're, we're there because we feel freedom. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel freedom from my old life. I was in, I was bound and in chains to, to alcohol. It, 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 it planned my entire day for me. It told me what I was doing from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to bed. And I don't, I'm free from that now. And I'm so much happier. And I've got a real life now. I'm actually plugged in. Everything before that I thought was living was just a lie. So being free to celebrate and, and feel joy and, and have authentic connections with other people and really connect, not just connect over what's in a martini glass, like there you absolutely get a new lease on life and really experience what it's like to live. And, and these events, that these, these meetups that we have, holy moly, you guys, if you've never partied in a group of like people who have recovered from alcoholism, you don't know what you're missing because we're the we're the funnest people. We are like your face is sore the next day from smiling so much. It's I cannot wait. Like every day when I wake up, I'm like, oh my god, I can't wait till Nashville. Less than two weeks. We're just it, life is so much better. Period. And so we got karaoke on Friday night. And a lot of the stuff, we're figuring it out as we go. I've not had karaoke yet at, at one of these events, but what's, what's, what's your go-to jam? Because you, you say you're going to help out. You're going to help out by getting karaoke kicked off. What's your song? Yes. I don't know if I want to say it. I think it's a secret. All right, let's keep it with that. <laughs> and I, if, I just All I can tell you is that uh, if you lived in any, any year during the 90s, you'll know this song. Roxette Joyride. Please tell me it's Roxette Joyride. No, but I think I still have that on cassette single somewhere. No, it's not. It is not. No, I'm, I'm representing. I'm representing hip hop. So it's okay. uh, it's it's going to be a good way to start it off. Yeah, it's it's going to be a blast. I mean, do you remember in Bozeman? Like we were supposed to have skits on Saturday night, and that got vetoed. Everyone was like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, we're having a dance party," and we ended up <laughs> yeah, having like a prom. That. <laughs> we had a prom, and we had streamers, and he brought out the you know the amp and the mic, and we had music. And it was just like impromptu party. We're like, screw skits. Nobody wants those. Let's dream. Like I learned how to do the wobble. Like, you know, I had never wobbled before. <laughs> and we was... had this guy named Garrett who Garrett. was completely shy. When he showed up on the airplane, it looked like he just wanted to go right back home. And when we played Michael Jackson on Saturday night, he came alive. And he's been alive since. Like it was incredible to watch this. Michael Jackson is alive and well, and he dwells in Garrett's soul. I can't think of anything to negate that statement. That was unbelievable. It was straight up like you played. I had the time. What's that song from Dirty Dancing? I had the time of my life. Mm -hmm. And we did the lift. Like Garrett laid on the ground, put his feet and arms up in the air. And I jumped on his feet like in an airplane pose. And we reenacted the lift from the last scene of Dirty Dancing. And it was magic, people. 
I think he he said 19 words the whole weekend before that a moment before that event on Saturday night, and and then he was out. And it's so Came beautiful alive. to see people yeah. do this. And now you can't get him to shut up. No, you can't. No, and, and <laughs> it's okay because Garrett has a podcast called After the Elevator where he listens to this podcast, and him and Tamara talk about the podcast. So Garrett. We love you, man. Keep mm-hmm. smiling, mm-hmm. keep dancing. And we've, I, I called the karaoke, karaoke company, Garrett, just to make sure they have Michael Jackson for you, buddy. Yes. Yes. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be so fun. I had no idea. If I had known it would be like this, I would have gotten sober 10 years earlier. Ditto. Absolutely. I had no idea. Yeah. And let's talk about recovery happy hour. Trisha, you oh, are no. crushing it. it. I'm so excited for this project. And, and I got to say something first. There, I feel recovered from alcohol, but as you said it perfectly, there's still other issues that I'm recovering with. There has been fear and trepidation um, that I'm working through, and, and having you on my podcast to talk about recovery at happy hour is me pushing past that veneer of my comfort zone again. And because recovery elevator to me is this project that I, I love so much, and there's the thought of like, wow, what what happens when somebody comes out with a, a podcast and it's better than mine and more people listen. What if I ever on my podcast and people don't listen to my podcast? If so, these are all valid concerns, right? But if I am in this in the right seat, which I, I feel like I'm in a great spot with this, if my intention is to truly destigmatize alcoholism, then this has to happen. And in Trisha, same thing's gonna happen to you. In three months, you are gonna inspire somebody to do a podcast and they're gonna call you because we chatted on the phone. I remember I was in a park and I told you what mixer to get, what microphones, you know, what programs. You're gonna be doing the exact same thing in two months, in four months. I it's- actually yeah, I just had that conversation with somebody last week actually. You know, apparently I'm now the go to person to ask for podcast advice. <laughs> how beautiful is that? Because this is how it's supposed to work. This is how mm-hmm. it's supposed to work. And, yeah, and like I said, on. I'm at a great spot for I'm at a great spot with this. And if somebody's podcast um, just crushes mine and download numbers, which yours might, it probably already is. I don't. It, it's just it's a beautiful thing. That's how it's supposed to go. So nice yeah. job, Trisha. I've I've heard Thank some you. of your episodes. And I'm like, whoa, this gal <laughs> is talented. Thank you. Well, you know, it goes to be, you know, we know that the stories of, of, you know, people's drunkologues and and their story of how they got to the point of quitting, we know what purpose those serve and they're important. I just hadn't heard a podcast that kind of talked about what happened after. So that was the point of recovery happy hour was what happens after we quit drinking? You know, what is life beyond the bottle? And that's what I kind of talk about in hopes that I can pass along the message that, again, life does go on. There, There is no fear of missing out. That's a lie. So we, yeah, we, we just, we talk about life after getting sober. It's fun. I love, I mean, I love to talk to people. I'm a relator. I love to help people articulate their own stories. It's hugely satisfying to do this. I, I work hard on it, but I enjoy that work so much. And for me, that works better than say, like sponsoring someone. I feel like if I can help pass along a message of hope to people, I can more efficiently pass it on via a podcast and helping people articulate their stories rather than be available to somebody by phone 24 hours a day who may or may not want to get sober. You know, for me, this is a, this is a way that, that I can be of service that, that, that feels better for me. feels a little more right. Absolutely. And A, you're doing a fantastic job with it. And B, the doors is going to open and, and to see where your journey is going to go is, is incredible with sober by Southwest. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You're already, mm-hmm. You're already doing some really cool things. What are some themes that you're 
that you're seeing? You're probably, what, 30 episodes in, something like that? Yeah, I think today was 36. Okay. And the, you know, the things that people are really relating to the most and that I'm getting the most feedback about, you know, gray area drinking is a big one. I think the label alcoholic is so done and so over. Um, people don't want to claim that as their their label. So anytime I bring up this gray area spectrum of drinking, you know, that, that maybe there's not just normal drinker and alcoholic, or maybe there's not just sober and alcoholic. Maybe there's this whole gray area in the middle where people have problematic drinking habits or they're emotional binge drinkers or they abuse it occasionally, whatever, whatever unhealthy drinking habit that they have. They fall into this area and that's still okay to say that's a problem and I want to find a way to, to learn how to not do that anymore. I think people are responding to that because the word alcoholic is so damaged and nobody wants to claim it anymore. Not nobody. Lots of people call themselves al- alcoholics. But I mean, it, 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 by, by t- just having that conversation, it just opens up the idea that somebody can still decide that alcohol is no longer serving them and learn to ask for help on how to fix that. Those are the episodes that people respond to the most. Also today, I did one on sober dating. There was no interview. It was just me talking for half an hour about what it's like to date sober and answering all the questions that we all ask before we venture out there. And people have been asking for that topic for a long time. And I finally just did it. And so far, I've just my my inbox on Instagram is blowing up. Well, what uh, summarize real quick. Talk to us about that. What you talk about? About sober dating? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the questions that I think we all ask are, do I have to tell somebody I'm an alcoholic? When do I tell them? What do I do on a date if I'm not drinking? Are people going to think I'm weird? What if they think I'm weird? You know, we, we future freak and overanalyze all these potential things that could happen. And the reality is that most of them never do. Dating is a... Uh, it's a great litmus test. It's a it's a great filter for figuring out who has a drinking problem and who doesn't. Sober dating, you have to get creative and come up with new ideas that don't involve having a drink. You have to. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing that we kind of future freak about is that big confession. When do, you know how am I going to tell somebody I'm an alcoholic? And the reality is, people that don't have a drinking problem legitimately don't give a shit. They just don't. So you're so ready to tell them this big, sad story, and they just probably don't want to hear it. They just, if you don't drink, you just say, hey, I don't drink, and ask them about their day, and people go on talking about themselves. We put so much effort into worrying about these these scenarios, and most of it's just not a big deal. Most people just don't care. If they do, if they do, we both know what that means. Yeah, I found this is one of the best filters we could possibly ask for. And these aren't shifts in mindsets. These aren't things that I'm telling myself to believe. But there's been some themes in, in my dating life that I've that I've encountered. One, like you said, nobody cares. We make it into this big announcement. It's not a big announcement at all. In fact, I was squashing perhaps the, the most badass thing about me. As we covered earlier with the Sober is Sexy meetup group that I created, people in general, including girls, they want to be around a guy that doesn't throw up on them at a bar at two in the morning. Yeah. yeah I'm not so into guys barfing on me either. You're so not. it's good to know. No, turns out. No, I'm not. Oh, mm-mm. I was wrong about you. Trisha. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And organically it almost always comes up. And then once I bring it up, it's, it's a, like a, first off, nobody cares. They don't care. 
And if they do care, that's your filter working for you. You've figured it out on one date. You've got to go on 10 more dates, be like, hey, here's, here's some information about me, and then they leave. Really, nobody, I haven't encountered anybody that has left because of that. I don't think so at this moment. But usually they come back, they circle the wagons, be like, tell me more about not drinking. Like, what's that like? Oh, yeah, I also wonder, I also would like to go out with my friends and not drink. I also want, you know, would like to be in an environment where alcohol isn't part of the the social gamut. It's, it's, it's yeah. cool or, to see. Or they go, yeah. Or they say just that they go, Oh, that's so cool. I wish I could do that. Or yeah, I've been thinking about cutting back too. Like it's usually a good idea to most people. They're very responsive to it and nobody's going to give us the third degree. And again, if they do, that just means that they're questioning their own drinking. I think that there's part of us that a believes that everybody outside of our recovery circles wants to hear our whole story and they don't. People in recovery want to relate to you. People that aren't in recovery, again, it's boring to them. They don't know. But B, we're not broken people. It's not like we have to give this confession of like, here's the broken things about me and it's so dramatic and will you still take me? Guys, getting sober should be celebrated again. It's a good thing. It's something that you can walk out and like tell people that you're proud of the work that you've done and you've taken control over something that was making your life worse. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I don't even switch up the event. Like, oh, I got to th- let's go sledding. Let's do something that doesn't involve alcohol. I straight up say, hey, let's go get drinks at seven. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah, I get, I I get a soda water, now. splash of crayon, and they say, oh, you're not going to get, oh, I don't drink. That's it. Mm-hmm. Don't even, yeah. don't even it- switch up the venue. It's really a non issue. Yeah. And, and I'm the same way now. I wasn't at first. At first is a little weird. And like any first, I mean, anything that you've never done before is weird at first, including dating sober. If you've never done it, it's going to be weird at first, but you get used to it and you learn how to do it and you get, you know, your sober muscles get stronger and eventually you can go to a bar and it's not a big deal. I mean, my man friend loves it. You know how great that it is that he never has to deal with a drunk, like a fighting with a drunk girlfriend. You know how much money he saves? Yeah, Trish, you didn't have three $14 martinis on martini night? Yeah. I know. I know. I know. I just, I'm like, hey, I want that ginger beer right there. I want it real bad. And I want three of them. And he's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you also find out in these conversations just how how large a swath of addiction is. Oftentimes, you know, you you tell a girl or tell a guy, like, oh, my ex-boyfriend was struggle with alcohol. And then the fact that you are past that, boom, superpower. It's the most badass yeah. thing about me. It's incredible. We're, we're all addicted to something. I think as alcoholics, we're the lucky ones because our addictions are pretty glaringly obvious. So it, it really, they're kind of easy to, to point out and learn how to fix. There's people that are addicted to, to things that they will never, ever understand. And uh, you don't see anyone labeling them with that, you know, shaking their fingers at them and giving them a stigma. No, not at all. I got one more thing to do. Talk about. Okay. Yeah. And honestly, I can't think of anything. I'm kind of all over the place today. You're doing great. This is a lovely interview. Uh, Okay. Take a break from that because I do, I have something I want to bring up. Okay. Uh, (laughs) So when I first got sober, I was so obsessed with this idea of what's my program going to look like? What's my higher power? What do I call that? I wanted to know everything from the beginning and you can't do that. You just can't. And if I, if, if 2016 brand new sober Buddhist Trisha had been told that two and a half years later, like she'd be reading the Bible every morning because she like effing loves it and has to start out her day in prayer because it makes her feel like a whole human being and it totally eliminates her anxiety. 2016 Trisha would have laughed in your face and, and like run away and would have never believed it. The evolution that you will go through that is 
that you, you just, you have no idea how much this process will change you. You think you know what you're going to turn into, but if you keep your mind open, you can turn into something so much different than you ever expected in the best way possible. Again, but you got to keep your mind open and you got to try everything. I have a much deeper understanding of my own spiritual beliefs now that I would have never been able to wrap my head around two years and some change ago had I not had the willingness and the open-mindedness to just embrace any change possible. And Trisha, I heard a quote probably 2012 or 13 from an old timer at a meeting that alcohol kills in this order, spiritually, mentally, and physically, and the healing happens in reverse order, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I have embarked, it started about eight months ago, embarked in the spiritual healing part of my recovery. And just like you said, I'm writing a book right now, and it's going to contain Jesus quotes and Buddha quotes. If you were to tell me that four years ago, three years ago, I don't know. I don't know. It might have slapped you. I mean, yeah, it's mind-blowing what we think we we know, and then it turns out we don't know shit, you know? (laughs) And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. And listeners, I'm going to, hopefully in five years from now, I'm going to read my own book and say, I didn't know shit. And that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of it. Well, and also, I think that the Bible is a great reference for just life lessons in general. God, just read the parables. And like, it's just, it's mind blowing. You don't have to call yourself again. You can eschew the labels and not call yourself anything. But I would encourage you to read that just for like some of the great lessons that you'll learn. Help read, you know, read the four pillars of Buddhism, read it all. Again, see what sticks, keep your mind open, be open to change and evolving and the idea that maybe you don't know everything. Yeah, so the bill. Ah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up. I know the first two. The the first one is that uh, that suffering is inevitable. But but two but two. This where it gets interesting is that all suffering is based on desire, desire for an outcome, desire for an external possession to uh, regulate the inner state. Really cool stuff. We all want permanence. We all want everything to be forever. We want to hold on to something and know that it is never going to go away. And that's not the case with anything. Everything and anything is going to die. And, you know, nothing is permanent. Nothing is forever. Our feelings, you know, our family members, you know, a, a temper tantrum, like nothing is forever. So as soon as you let go of that, like there's a lot of peace that comes along with just letting go of, of the idea of permanence. Trisha, it has been an absolute pleasure reconnecting with you. I will see you in Nashville. Cannot wait to do that. And I hope to see you in Bozeman. Hope to see you in Asia. And before we depart, you got to give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. Mm, I wasn't ready for that one, Paul. Let me think of a good one. And while you're thinking, also, what parting piece of guidance would you, you give to listeners? What parting piece of guidance I would give to listeners is that you do not have to be an alcoholic to decide to change your relationship with alcohol. It is okay to try something and not claim a label or change your mind and go back out and go back to the way you were doing things before. There's nothing wrong with just deciding you want to learn more about something. No one's going to fault you for that. Not at all. Um, I think I'd say, you know, you might be an alcoholic if you wake up and you plan your entire day around drinking or accommodating your hangover. Yeah, that's it. it. That, that, that was the overarching theme of my life. Accommodating the hangover and moving things around to accommodate alcohol later. Love it. Mm-hmm. That's it. You guys, it's recovery, happy hour, and sober by Southwest, March 16th. This is so cool. You put on a sober music festival. And so, like just incredible stuff, Trisha. Keep it up. Thank you. Working hard on it. Guys, come out and see me. If you're anywhere near Austin, Texas, come out and give me a hug. And even better, if you know any friends who live around Austin, tell them about this event. Even if you can't come, tell your Texan friends to come out and I'll give them hugs too. Love it. Thank you, Trisha. (laughs) 
You're welcome. Wow. The Bozeman retreat we did in 2017 was fun. It was special. It's hard to put words to it. There's an effervescence about describing of how it was. We're 11 days into March and this thing might fill up registrations. They're happening fast. Again, we're going to cap this thing at 55 people. So do not wait to register. Check out Big Sky Country. Of course, we're going to learn new strategies and techniques of how to stay sober. But most importantly, two things. We're going to bolster our community. We're going to meet the people that are going to help us take the next step forward in recovery. You might be thinking it's this Paul guy that I have all the answers. Number one, I don't. The most important connections you're going to make are not with me. It's going to be with other people. And the second thing, the mindset, guys, this whole retreat is a celebration of your decision to move forward in life without alcohol. Every single podcast episode that comes out is a celebration of all of our decisions to move forward in life without alcohol. It is a fantastic, incredible event. All right. Love you guys. Recovery Elevator. Don't forget, it all starts from the inside out. This is an inside job. I love you guys. 